Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Matthew Cooperberg from the University of California, San Francisco, talking about prostate cancer screening, diagnosis, and risk stratification. Good morning. I'm Matt Kipperberg from UCSF uh, Urology and EpiBioStat. And uh, today I'm going to share with you the fifth in this series of urology COVID lectures on prostate cancer screening, diagnosis, and risk stratification. It's really been tremendous to see how quickly this effort has come together. And uh, it's really, I think, going to be a fantastic resource for those on today, as well as anyone who comes to the uh, lecture to watch it in the future. So, I have a number of disclosures, none of which are relevant uh, to the talk today. Our objectives, uh, the main is that you really be able to lead an intelligent conversation with the primary care docs who refer to you, who are really the ones um, who are uh, actually going to be doing the, the PSA screening and early detection. Of course, this is typically not an effort done by urologists. It's critical that the other side of that covenant be held up and what that entails is that men who are referred to you for elevated PSA um, actually get a good optimized evaluation. And finally, that you're in a position to apply a real multivariable risk stratification to men after diagnosis to avoid both over and under treatment. So let's start off uh, by talking about where things stand with early detection and what the state of the evidence really is. So it's always useful to start at the 30,000 foot view um, and realize that prostate cancer remains by far the most common diagnosis most common cancer diagnosed among men in the US, nearly 200,000 diagnoses a year. It's the second most common cause of cancer mortality, uh, exceeded only by lung cancer, but of course the number of dying of the disease is far out, far exceeded by those diagnosed with it. And in that one fact has really laid the heart of the problem for, for many years. Now it's also important to recognize prostate cancer as an increasingly global phenomenon and this used to be thought of as sort of a problem only facing the industrialized world, uh, but this really is no longer true. Prostate cancer has now overtaken esophageal to be the fifth leading cause of uh, cancer mortality uh, worldwide, over 300,000 deaths a year anticipated. And of course, there's a lot of variation from place to place in terms of uh, testing. Um, but despite that, there are regions of the world, particularly uh, West Africa and other regions where there's high populations of men with African descent, uh, where this is by far the most common cause of cancer mortality across both genders. Now, if we think about the trends over time, incidence of prostate cancer obviously spiked in the early 1990s with the onset of PSA testing and the pickup of many prevalent cases in the community who had been living with it undiagnosed. Then things settled out for a number of years. And then in the late 2000s, with the series of recommendations from the US Preventative Services Task Force against PSA screening, we've seen a tremendous drop in incidence. And over the last couple of years, we've seen lower numbers than we've actually seen since the early 1980s. Now, of course, this is not because prostate cancer has gone away. Um, it's because we really stopped looking for it. And I'm gonna to get to why that happened and what the solution might be. In the meantime, prostate cancer mortality, this graph is on a different time scale here. This one goes back to the 1930s. Uh, prostate cancer mortality has been falling consistently since the 1990s, and it fell almost 50% um, at a steeper velocity than any cancer except lung cancer. Now, we know the lung cancer drop is from smoking cessation programs. What drives the prostate cancer uh, mortality drop is certainly multifactorial. It's not entirely due to screening, but the best uh, models out there suggest that at least a third and probably closer to a half of this drop can be attributed directly to early detection and better management of aggressive disease. Now, if you look at this curve though, it flattened. And as much as we like to see curves flattening these days, this is not the curve that we want to see flattening. Um, and I'm gonna to get to the question of what is driving this shortly, but there's little question that if we don't find the correct kind of middle ground here in terms of screening, we will see the mortality curves increase as the population continues to age. It's also worth stressing that the well-recognized racial disparity in terms of prostate cancer uh, metastatic burden has not narrowed over the years. These are data going back to the 1970s. It's a really nice paper from the NCI researchers um, looking at trends over the years. And you can see uh, that the drop, the velocity has been almost identical between Caucasian and African-American men over the years, but the gap really has not narrowed. Consistently about a two and a half fold 
excess burden of mortality facing African-American men compared to Caucasian men. Now, what's interesting about that, and this relates to how screening policies should potentially be modulated by race, um, is the fact that we see strong differences uh, by age. So it's really the youngest men who bear the greatest X-men in their 60s and 70s here, where the burden is about two and a half fold. Uh, the younger men, uh, the burden is three and even four fold higher than for Caucasian men. Now, what drives this is not fully understood. It is almost certainly multifactorial. Uh, representing a combination of genetic and social environmental factors, access to care, etc. And what's also interesting is that this, this trend in terms of racial disparity has really been very much a question of local variation. And this is a nice study looking at different cities and their trends over time from the early 1990s to the late 2000s in terms of what the disparity has looked like. So the white circles in each of these graphs has, is the change over time from the 90s to the 2000s for white men, and the black circle is the change for black men. Uh, so the taking San Francisco as an example here, this is sort of a typical case where we saw about a 40% drop in mortality for both Caucasian and African-American men. Uh, at the extremes, you have Minneapolis where uh, mortality fell 30% for Caucasians and 70% for African-Americans, so narrowing the gap. And there's a few cities where it's actually gotten worse, where mortality has actually gone up for African-American men compared to Caucasian men. It's not to say that there's any specific policies we can point to different regions which explain, um, but it is an important point to stress that a lot of this variation does tend to be local and needs to be analyzed uh, both at a local regional level as well as nationally. So this is a huge victory, right? We drove down cancer mortality for prostate cancer 50%. So how did this happen that in 2012, we got this grade D recommendation? And we should be clear about what the grade D meant. This was a statement that we should not screen anybody for prostate cancer ever, period. Uh, and there's a lot of hemming and hawing in the fine print on this guideline as to, you know, caveats and this and that and the other thing. But at the end of the day, this was the recommendation, and this is what primary care heard, is do not screen. So how did this happen? Well, look, this was largely our fault. And when I say our, I'm speaking very broadly. There's a lot of shared blame here. A lot of it does fall with urology, with radiation oncology, and also with primary care for not implementing prostate cancer screening and treatment effectively. And at the heart of the dilemma really is the question of what it means to have a prostate cancer diagnosis in the first place. So uh, this is a terrific cartoon from uh, what's getting to be an older paper from Laura Esterman, who's a breast surgeon in SF, and Ian Thompson, urology at uh, University of Texas, uh, thinking about screening for any malignancy. And the idea here is the vertical lines are any sort of interval screening, whether we're talking about PSA, mammography, colonoscopy, what have you. And if you get to the far right here, you've died of another cause. If you get to the top, you've actually died of cancer. And the idea is there are many tumors which we do not find. These are the so-called autopsy cancers that we don't find. Even with screening, it's perfectly fine. You're better off not knowing about them. There's a lot of cancers that we can find when they are confined to the prostate. We can so-called cure them, uh, but had we never found them, they never would have caused any symptoms or threat to life. These are the overdiagnosed tumors. Then there are cancers that we can find when they're confined to the prostate. We can cure these. Had we not found them, they would have progressed to lethal disease. Uh, but we, here we can actually make an intervention and change this ultimate prognosis. And then finally, there are the rare ones where the PSA is you know, 0 0.6, then it's 0 0.8, and then it's 3. Uh, and by the time we get the biopsy, there's already a T3B tumor. These are called interval tumors. They're fortunately very uncommon in the case of prostate cancer. But this is why we can't screen, for example, for pancreatic cancer. So the tension is really about the rabbits and the turtles and how many of the turtles we've crushed in the course of chasing the rabbits and what the implications are for the turtle population. Uh, and another great way of thinking about the, the analogies between prostate cancer and breast cancer, because there are many, uh, comes from a perspective piece uh, from New England Journal a couple years ago, looking at what has happened with metastatic disease over the years with the onset of screening. Uh, because it turns out prostate cancer really has seen a sharp drop in metastatic disease diagnosis, whereas breast cancer really has not. And there is a tremendous ongoing discussion in terms of what explains this. And there's a lot of discussion in this article, which is still very much worth a read, about the nature of the disease. And you guys may have heard of this kind of Halsteadian versus Fisherian paradigm for cancer. And the Halsteadian paradigm was the idea, you know, promulgated by Dr. Halsted many, many years ago, of course, that if you just take out more tissue, you will catch the cells before they're able to spread. And this was the concept that drove the development of the original radical mastectomy, which, of course, we learned over time really was not effective because the cells could metastasize early. And that was the concept um, 
uh, recognized by Dr. Fisher, was a radiation oncologist focused on breast cancer, who really argued that the metastatic events happened very early, and that just by treating the local, more, local tumor more aggressively, uh, we're not necessarily going to cure. And this is the driver of multimodal treatment for breast cancer. Uh, then there was Dr. Hellman from NCI much more recently who advanced the most likely correct argument that the answer is yes, all the above, it really depends on the details. Some cancers within both prostate and breast behave in more of a Halsteadian fashion and can be found when they are aggressive but confined to the prostate uh, or the breast and cured, whereas others do metastasize very early at a microscopic level. Um, now, this is very likely true of both prostate and breast cancer. I think one of the interpretations which does not come up in this article in terms of trying to distinguish uh, the, the trends for prostate versus breast cancer is that PSA is the best screening biomarker in the history of oncology um, and far better than mammography. Problem is we have not used it well in terms of optimizing how we screen for prostate cancer and how we treat. So to summarize a very complex history in a single slide, Throughout the 90s and 2000s, when PSA first hit the market, prostate cancer screening was not implemented well. There was highly prevalent overscreening of older men, underscreening of younger men, overtreatment of low-risk disease, and undertreatment of high-risk disease. Now, despite all this, we drove down the mortality 50%, uh, but the collateral damage was far too much overtreatment and poorly delivered treatment with attendant side effects, which gradually became less and less acceptable to the general public, to the primary care referring community, and ultimately to the task force. Now, the screen nobody solution promulgated by the task force in the 2012 guideline was not the right solution to overtreatment. Um, that is very much throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Rather, it has become increasingly clear that there is a middle ground of smarter screening, which is the path that we need to follow. So part of the problem has been that it takes a really, really long time in following up trials to get the truth about anything to do with prostate cancer because the natural history of this disease is measurable in years and decades. And it takes a long time and a lot of money to run a trial over decades. So it's taken a long time to learn the truth from the RCTs that are out there. Now this is the truth that is gradually emerging. So there's three studies uh, which everybody hears about, the ERSPC, the Ilteberg study, and the PLCL. So the ERSPC was a multinational, basically collaborative European trials, which in a nutshell showed a 20 to 30% relative reduction in prostate cancer mortality. The Ilteberg trial, which is sometimes described as a subset analysis of the ERSPC, although it in fact was not, showed a greater drop in mortality, about 40%. The PLCO was non-informative with respect to the question, and I'm gonna show you why in one moment. So the ERSPC, just in a brief update uh, last year, this is now after 16 years, showed a 20% drop in mortality with screening versus no screening. The numbers which get referred to frequently are the number needed to invite to screening, the number needed to diagnose. This is not the same as the number needed to treat. And with longer term follow-up, these numbers continue to drop. If anybody remembers the original publication from the ERSPC in 2009, came out the same day as the original publication from PLCO. And the big headline in the New York Times covering these two uh, major trials was American trial shows no benefit, European trial show shows a benefit, but you have to treat 48 men to save one life. Um, now over time with greater follow-up, that number has fallen from 48 to 18. The number needed to screen has fallen from 1900 to 570. And the terminology terminology has changed. This is not the number needed to treat, it's the number needed to diagnose. It's not the number needed to screen, it's the number needed to invite to screening because not everybody gets screened. Uh, and this 20% is almost certainly an underestimate because there was non-attendance and contamination in this trial, meaning there were plenty of men in the control arm who got tested. There were plenty of men in the intervention arms who were invited to screening and did not get screened. The screening also started at a fairly late age. Uh, the average age was uh, men already in their 60s. And the treatment wasn't necessarily high quality. This was in the early to mid 90s in many of these countries where radiation doses were low. This is a lot of low volume surgery being done. And the follow-up, frankly, is still quite short. And I know it seems like 16 years is very robust, uh, but I'll show you later on, we're just scratching the surface of the follow-up required. And the deaths here are really only occurring at about five to eight years after treatment. Now. Like I said, 16 years is better than the original 11-year report, but you really need to take a long-term view here. And there's a very nice modeling study done uh, looking at these numbers and projecting over the lifetime. So where this number needs to treat comes from is you take the number of 
overdiagnoses, the number of men who are getting diagnosed and did not need to know about their turtle, their low-risk overdiagnosed indolent tumor, related to the number of lives saved. So at the original report in 2009, that was 34 to 0.7. That ratio gives you a number you need to diagnose of 48. But if you project forward over the course of the man's life, you get a little more overdiagnosis with a greater passage of time, but more lives saved. This gives you a number needed to diagnose of seven, which actually compares favorably to almost anything else we do in preventive medicine. So a guideline, which is the US task force, uh, based on outcomes at eight to 10 years is not informative. And the updated guideline, which refers to you know, one life saved per thousand at 13 years is only marginally better. If the horizon is 13 years, do not screen the man. If the horizon is 15 years, he probably doesn't need to be screened either. We screen to avoid problems 20, 30 years down the road. Now, the PLCO was the American trial that screened 70,000, randomized 70,000 men at 10 centers across the US to screening versus usual care in the 1990s. The problem is usual care in the 1990s was a ton of PSA testing. This is exactly when PSA hit the, hit the market and everybody and his uncle was running out and getting a PSA test. So because of this, the investigators allowed pre-enrollment PSA testing. So 52% of the men were acknowledged to have had at least one PSA before they were even assigned to the study. Um, and only 30 to 40% of the men who actually had a high PSA went on to get biopsy. So if in the original report, there were really no differences between the types of tumors in the two arms. We pointed this out after the original publication that this was not a trial of screening versus no screening. It's a trial of annual screening versus opportunistic or ad hoc screening. This was recognized by the trial investigators as early as their follow-up in 2012, but this trial continued to be uh, kind of promoted as a counterbalance to the ERSPC until very So finally, a couple of years ago, a paper came out in the England Journal looking at the final rates of testing in the control arm of the PLCO. And it turned out over 90% of the men in the so-called control arm had at least one PSA. So this trial just basically started too late in the US. It was not a trial of, of screening versus no screening. This is generally acknowledged at this point. And because of this, you cannot include it in meta-analyses. So any meta-analysis that includes the PLCO and the ERSPC by, def by definition is not going to be valid. Now, despite all these difficulties, there was a tremendous modeling effort uh, published a couple years ago, reconciling the two trials. And it turns out if you really do adjust for the extent of screening in both the control and intervention arms, you get a very consistent story. So across three different mathematical models at three different universities, you get a very consistent story of about 30% relative risk reduction with screening versus no screening. And this probably gets us relatively close to the truth. Now, the final trial that I mentioned is the, uh, the Swedish trial, the Yotelberg study. This is, again, sometimes described as a subset of the ERSPC, although it really is not. Half the men in the Yotelberg study were contributed to the ERSPC, but half were not. And the critical point is that the half that were not were the younger men. So this trial had a younger start age than most of the others. The average age here was only about 52. And in large part because of this, and because they had very little contamination in their control arm, they had a greater risk reduction with screening uh, than any of the other trials, and another needed to treat of only 12. Um, and this is probably closer to more of an optimal screening paradigm. So, you know, the, there are lots of problems in terms of the uh, task force assessments of the evidence and some of the other guidelines as well. But again, what really drove the pendulum swing against screening was, you know, in part, it was misinterpretations of the evidence, but in large part, it was just poor implementation of screening and treatment. So if you look at who gets a PSA test, the study has been repeated uh, multiple times over the years and consistently the year 2005, 10, 13, the most common to get a PSA test in America is late 60s and early 70s. And the men in their 40s, expected to see a huge between 2010, it was really across the board. And in fact, there's more of a drop for younger men than for older men. Uh, and the group from Vanderbilt really showed this uh, very nicely. Uh, if you look at when the 2012 guidance came out, <clears throat> the draft version in, um, in the fall of 2011, an immediate 25 drop in prostate cancer diagnosis. And this continued. And we dropped diagnosis of prostate cancer, which is, this is um, less over, but we 
current uh, I can't under diagnosis, which is going to lead you under treatment. And it's also the case that metastatic prostate cancer is rising. Um, and it started rising really at the beginning of the last decade. Uh, now, this is not necessarily immediately attributable to the task force uh, because the 2012 uh, statement is going to take, uh, you know, of course, it's going to take a number of years for the, um, for the, I'm sorry, I'm hearing the audio is out again. Give me one moment. Um, it's going to take time for any change in screening policy to actually be felt. Um, so there are other things going on. There are other secular trends which are driving this. And the other thing that this is not is just stage migration, uh, because these studies also look at the average PSA at time of diagnosis of metastatic disease, and that has been going up as well. So it's not just the case that we're doing more imaging and finding more metastatic disease at an earlier point in its progression. Uh, this really does appear to be other trends in the population which are not well explained yet, driving an increase in mortality. So it's exactly the wrong time uh, to abandon screening. Now the problem in terms of our responsibility for it has been over-treatment and under-treatment. So we've looked at this question multiple times over many years and found that for men with low risk disease, and I'll get into risk stratification later, but for men with low risk prostate cancer, which are the bars on the left, year after year, we found pervasive over-treatment. The use of active surveillance for watchful waiting until really the most recent years uh, was only 10 to 15% or less. Uh, the vast majority of men with low risk disease were getting treated. Until the current decade, we've seen it rise in multiple data sets up to 40 to 50 percent. And at the same time, there's a tremendous amount of undertreatment of high-risk disease, uh, with the majority of men with high-risk disease getting hormonal therapy alone and no attempt at curative therapy. And again, that is changing, but just in the last few years. So uh, we're seeing a lot of progress in the right direction. 40 percent surveillance is still too low, but it is rapid progress. Um, and in fact, the 2018 task force statement uh, really reflects the increase in active surveillance quite directly. They refer to this study um, as evidence that we are shifting the ratio of harms and benefits because we're doing more active surveillance. So how do we do screening better? Well, in 2020, and really as of 2017-18, we're seeing a consensus in terms of the guidelines that men should be offered shared decision-making. Uh, there's, dis there's disagreement and discrepancy in terms of the optimal ages, but we are seeing a consensus about shared decision-making for most men. Now, the AUA recommends shared decision-making for men 55 to 70. They don't recommend make a recommendation for 40 to 54, and then they recommend against testing for men over 70. The NCCN recommends shared decision-making starting at age 45 with an earlier start for African-American men. The American Cancer Society similarly recommends shared decision-making starting at age 50. Uh, with an earlier baseline if there are risk factors such as uh, race. Then the task force and the AAFP, the Family Practice Association, again, recommend shared decision-making for men 55 to 69 and recommend against for men over 70. Now, it's really important to stress that this 55 number is not an optimized number. This is not uh, recommended by any of the guidelines uh, to be optimal based on, uh, on specific data by age. The reason both the AUA and the US Task Force focus on 55 is that they said explicitly they only consider the RCT data and they did not include the Yotaberg trial, uh, which in my opinion is a mistake. And uh, so because the ERSPC only included men 55 to 69, that is the only core age group uh, where we have a recommendation for shared decision-making by AUA and task force. But if you look at the totality of the evidence, you can actually make a pretty clear argument that screening really should start earlier. Now, what does shared decision-making entail? This is a conversation with the man before you draw a PSA test about the risks and benefits of screening. This does not need to be highly burdensome. You, know, you can go to the CDC website and download a 15-page decision aid about risks and benefits of screening and treatment before you draw a PSA. It's a little ridiculous. It's, a, it's like, um, you know, it's a little bit like talking about the risks of cabbage uh, after stroke after cabbage before you check somebody's blood pressure, it's totally impractical. The only points you really need to stress are that PSA screening is intended to find aggressive prostate cancer while it's within the window of opportunity for cure. 
and that screening may identify low risk prostate cancer, which should be managed with active surveillance. If the man understands that before the biopsy and ideally before the PSA test, the conversation about not treating aggressive prostate cancer is much easier. And it's critical when we talk about harms and benefits too, that we have a realistic assessment of harms and benefits in local practice. There are these statements in both the old and new task force uh, guidelines that, you know, if every thousand men treated, two to 300 will have long-term uh, severe erectile dis uh, dysfunction and incontinence. Even the 2018 statement, of every 80 men who undergo surgery and radiation therapy, 60 or more will experience serious complications of incontinence and sexual dysfunction. Now you can cherry pick the literature to find these numbers, uh, but you have to cherry pick the literature to find these numbers. And obviously this is totally inconsistent with what's achieved in most high volume practices today. So how do we stream smarter? I'm really happy to say that after a two year conversation with the primary care leadership at UCSF, we now have a protocol in place which we are testing, which is based on early baseline testing and tailored testing. And I'm gonna tell you the rationale for this in just a minute, but the concept is for men at a young age, so starting at 45 to 60, uh, we are recommending a shared decision-making conversation. If the PSA is less than one at baseline, we do not recheck for at least five years. If the PSA is marginal, meaning one to two for younger men, one to three for older men, recheck in six to 12 months, or consider early referral if there are risk factors like race and family history. And then over two for younger men, over three for older men, consider referral, not biopsy, but referral for workup. So what is the rationale for this early baseline? Well, there's a couple beautiful studies, the best one of which is the Malmo trial. Now this is a study which will never be repeated. In the early 1980s in the city of Malmo in Sweden, uh, they launched a uh, cardiac risk factors study where the entire population of the city donated blood and, and people lived out their lives. This was 1982, it was years and years before PSA was on anybody's radar. The men in the city lived their lives. Um, ultimately, some of them got prostate cancer, some of them died of it. And the clinical chemists at uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering, years later, went back and were able to run PSAs on all this archival material. And it turns out a PSA less than one at age 60 pretty much wipes out your risk of prostate cancer for the rest of your life. Uh, a PSA over two defines the top quartile, and this is where pretty much all the mortality happened. Now, in a follow-up study, they looked at the, at the value of an even earlier baseline. So this has been in their late 40s, and it looks very similar for early 50s. So the first thing to note here is that the curves start diverging after 15 years. What I said before about the ERSPC barely starting to be interpretable at 16 years, this really is the case. We see uh, the differences by baseline PSA at 15, 20, 25 years. So the men with the 10-year life expectancy does not need a PSA test. Uh, it's really younger men with long life expectancy who benefit the most. Now, the other point is we need to forget all about 4.0. So the median PSA is defined by 0.7, the highest quartile by 1.1, the highest decile by 1.6. Uh, a number of follow-up studies have now been done. This is a, a summary and the most recent one. Have, so there are studies in, in Malmo, which is the Swedish trial, and the Health Professional Follow-Up Study, which is a large cohort study run out of Harvard. And most recently from the Southern Community Cohort Study, which is a largely African-American cohort, um, and all have shown exactly the same thing. So for men in their late 40s, which is the top set of numbers here, median PSA is consistently about 0.7. By the time you get to your early 50s, it's about 0.8. By the time you get to 60, it's about 1.0. And consistently across all these studies, uh, this number uh, really does predict non-risk non of prostate cancer for decades in the future. Most recently, there's an abstract from Japan looking at 260,000 men. Again, exactly the same numbers across the world. 0.7 for men in their 40s, uh, 0.8 for men in their 50s, you know, a little less, a uh, little lower, but roughly 1.0 by the time you get to 60. Now, this is a huge proportion of the population that can pretty much take prostate cancer off their list of worries for the rest of their life with a single cheap blood test. So one of the concepts with smarter screening is we really do need to forget about 4.0. 4.0 for a 70-year-old with a lot of BPH may or may not be a concern. 4.0 52-year-old is a major problem. Even PSA of two for a 50-year-old uh, can be a cause for concern. Now, uh, the question of what do we actually do with men who are referred for elevated PSA? So the first point is the PSA, of course, should not be interpreted in a vacuum. Uh, a low PSA below the median has a very good negative predictive value, as I've stated. 
Uh, but a marginal or a high PSA may indicate prostate cancer or of course it may indicate other sources. And there's some great tools out there. This is my favorite risk calculator. Um, very easy to use at the point of care because it gives a sense, not just the prostate cancer diagnosis, but the likelihood of having high grade cancer. And I think this, this sort of smiley gram is a, a very nice tool for patients to try to make a decision about whether or not they actually want to proceed with workup and biopsy. And this integrates the PSA together with race, age, family history, et cetera. And a well-informed man may look at a 7% risk of prostate cancer and decide to get a biopsy or not get a biopsy. Uh, and that's a good decision as long as it's a well-informed decision in either direction. And then of course we have a lot of adjunct tests now available for pretty much every prostate cancer decision. Um, so in the space of whether we should do a first biopsy, we now have frankly more biomarkers than we know what to do with along with MRI. Um, and it's important when we look at these markers to stress that a, to be valuable, a marker has to improve on a multivariable tool like the risk calculator, not just on PSA. Uh, it's really important to look at the methodology when we're choosing uh, new markers because it's very easy for problems in study design, drive uh, incorrect interpretation. Uh, and finally, critical to stress, and this is the case for most of the emerging markers, that the goal of launching a new marker uh, is not finding more prostate cancer. The goal is finding high-grade disease or potentially lethal disease. So these tests now on the market with uh, uh, PCA3 and the MIPS score, PCA3 together with uh, Tempers 2 ERG in the urine. Silic MDX and ExoDX are also urine tests, 4K and PHI are blood tests, and then we've got MRI all kind of playing in the same space. I'm not going to do an exhaustive dive into the biomarkers, but just to give a flavor of what's out there, uh, PCA3 is an mRNA uh, detectable in the urine. It's been looked at in many studies over the years, never quite worked for a lot of the same reasons that PSA as a 4.0 threshold never quite worked uh, because it doesn't work well as a single threshold test. The best paper here uh, looked at a dual threshold on PCA3 where it's actually quite effective. So PCA3, PCA3 level less than 20 has a very good negative predictive value. A level over 60 has a very good positive predictive value. And in between, you've got a lot of shades of gray. And that just is the nature of the disease. Um, but this one, I think, has fallen out of favor a bit um, because we tried to look at it with the single threshold of 25 or 30, where it never quite panned out. Uh, K is uh, one of the two tests at isoforms of PSA, say free PSA in TSA and HK2, which is a related telling. Together with test, is it explicitly incorporates the clinical information to give the patient a percent likelihood of having a high-grade cancer if we went forward and did a biopsy. And I think that's a very clinically actionable readout. Uh, select MVX is a urine test looking at uh, two different uh, um, And again, the readout here is likelihood of having aggressive prostate cancer. So Gleason 7 or higher. And this one is really calibrated explicitly for negative predictive value. So if the select test is negative, uh, that's about a 98% likelihood of not having a high-grade cancer. If it's positive, you may or may not. So this is a great means to think of ruling out biopsy um, and reassuring men that they may have another source of PSA elevation. Uh, the most recent entree here is ExoDX, which again looks at PCA3 and Tempers 2, uh, but explicitly in the exosomal component of the urine. Um, very similar performance characteristics with the other tests. Uh, the advantage here is it does not need a a DRE ahead of time. Again, the point here is not to do a, a deep dive into all the biomarkers, but just to give a flavor of the fact that there's a lot of things in the armamentarium now to use between an elevated PSA and a biopsy. Now, what about MRI? Uh, MRI is obviously promulgated in certain quarters as a mandatory test now before a biopsy. I don't think we're there yet. Uh, Multiparameter MR, of course, looks at anatomy, looks at diffusion weighting, which is basically a surrogate for cellular density and at vascularity of perfusion in, in terms of dynamic contrast. Uh, I'm sure everybody's familiar with the PIRAD system that integrates these different series, the, the T2, dynamic contrast and diffusion weighting, to give a one to five likelihood scale of the presence of prostate cancer. And the problem with PIRAD 5 is there's a lot of information loss. The patient spends half an hour in the MR magnet. Uh, you get a tremendous amount of data, which then gets transformed into simplified grayscale pictures for the radiologist to look at. And they say, well, it's a three for T2, it's you know, diffusion weighting, yes or no, dynamic contrast, let's give it a one through five scale. And then effectively we dichotomize that. So we're losing a tremendous amount of information along the way. 
Um, and there's a lot of variation in terms of how the pyrrhus score is actually uh, interpreted by radiologists. So the best evidence here is the PROMISE trial out of the UK where they actually did a systematic mapping biopsy following MR on all these men. Um, the bullet from the trial was that they only missed 7% of the clinically significant cancers, but that was with this really strange definition of clinically significant, which was 4 plus 3 or high volume 3 plus 3. In their secondary analysis, which uses the much more standard definition of any 3 plus 4 disease, the negative predicted value was only 76%. So it missed nearly a quarter of the 3 plus 4s in the course of saving 25% of uh, biopsies if we used an MRI as a reflex test. Uh, and there's a lot of inter-observer variation. Uh, so this is even at the NCI, which is probably the gold standard shop for MRI in the country. Um, the, uh, for the high volume radiologists at the NCI, uh, for looking at all lesions, they had agreement of about 70% from radiologist to radiologist. For the index lesions, they did better. Um, in the 90s. But if you look at all the radiologists at NCI, their agreement really falls to the 50s. Uh, there was another terrific study on this topic out of Stanford where they looked at the nine different radiologists reading MRs at Stanford for men who went on to a fusion biopsy. And if you had a PIRADS 5 uh, read at Stanford, the likelihood of actually having a high grade prostate cancer ranged from 40% to 80%. This is a massive problem. And I encourage everybody to repeat this study in their local institution. Uh, because we really need to know the performance characteristics of PIRAS before we can use this, uh, especially as a reflex test, which might rule men out for a first biopsy. Most recently, just a few weeks ago, there was a paper out in the New England Journal, again from NCI, comparing systematic biopsy alone to targeted biopsy alone to a combined biopsy. And there's really little question that the combined biopsy, including both the systematic and the targeted biopsies, is the best for finding high-grade prostate cancer. Uh, and I would also argue that we really should not abandon ultrasound itself as a diagnostic modality. You will hear these snarky comments that ultrasound is a great way to find the prostate, not the cancer. This really should not be the case. Um, and with training and experience, uh, you know, it is possible to see most of the MRI visible lesions on ultrasound. You know, the equipment's gotten a lot better over the years. Um, and most of the lesions, which, especially the PIRATES 5 lesions, are easily visible on trust. And this is the test that we're doing anyway at the point of care. And I think this is still a critical part of the urologist's armamentarium. Uh, we really should be good ultrasonographers. And I would encourage everyone to consider routine anterior biopsies. Uh, we've done this at UCSF for many years. This was Katsura Shinohara's uh, work from the early 2000s. Finding the most common place for missed cancer is the anterior horn of the prostate, you don't need to do an MRI to find these uh, necessarily if you routinely add those two cords to the template. So finally, what about risk stratification after diagnosis? So it should really go without saying that every single patient with prostate cancer diagnosis needs a consistent approach to risk stratification and the treatments need to be targeted to risk. Men with low risk disease in 2020 should not be treated, they should be on active surveillance. Men with high-risk disease will do well with early local therapy, surgery, or radiation. Men with higher-risk disease often need multimodal treatment, and it's really only the highest-risk metastatic cancers who should go to systemic therapy primarily. The question is how we do this. Uh, the D'Amico risk groups, which I'm sure everybody knows and has, everyone has memorized, really are outdated. There's far too much heterogeneity within these groups. They overweight the value of T-stage. There's a lot of problems here, um, and this really is no longer art, up in state of the art for many years. This is our standard of care, but frankly, these are not much better. First of all, I would love to pull the audience to see anybody that has actually memorized this and can do this with a glance at the chart. I frankly can't most weeks um, because there's so many different criteria in each of these boxes here. Um, and no offense to camels, but if anybody's ever heard this phrase that a camel is a horse designed by committee, this is a risk stratification system literally designed by a committee. And what you've got is criteria in every one of these groups here. So PSA density is only relevant for the very low one. We've got number of cores in a couple of the strata, percent of cores in other strata, percent of tissue in different strata. It makes really no sense. It's not a linear scale. And this really has just kind of evolved as a mishmash over the years. The AUA adopted something very similar. In the latest guideline in 2018, it of course has a different dichotomization of favorable and unfavorable intermediate disease than the NCCN does, just to add confusion. Uh, and this is really not a good way of doing risk stratification because there's too much overlap within these boxes. 
So these are the Catan nomogram scores by risk groups. This is the original Catan, uh, the original Jamico risk groups on the left. These are the updated NCCN risk groups on the right. And what you can see is that low risk is relatively consistent, but there's a huge amount of overlap within any of these other boxes because you've got equal weighting of these different criteria and too much lumping of men with different risk profiles into these risk boxes. So we need to do something multivariable. There are lots of nomograms out there. This is the original Catan nomogram, which integrates PSA grade and stage. Uh, the updated Stevenson nomogram um, incorporates the extent of biopsy core information. And these give you a zero to 100 uh, readout of likelihood of recurrence if you go on to surgery. They've both been well validated, they calibrate well. The problem has been that they're a little bit awkward to use. You either need this paper table or you need computer software to do it. And the investigators are perfectly willing to share the computer code you need to calculate this in the research setting, um, <clears throat> but it's still awkward to, to actually use. Uh, so for that reason, in 2005, we developed Then, after all different treatments, surgery, radiation therapy, et cetera, around the world. And this does a really good job at risk stratification. So 85% accuracy in predicting likelihood of prostate cancer mortality out to 16 years, um, ranging from nearly zero, basically 0% 0 likelihood of death up to nearly 65%. So there is still this comment in the task force 2018 statement that we can't tell the aggressor from the indolent prostate cancers. It's just not true. Um, and the fact is we can do even better for free by incorporating things like PSA density, the extent of pattern four, and subtypes of pattern four. For example, cribriform, we now know has a more aggressive uh, course than say fused glands or poorly formed glands within pattern four. And this is all free. Um, if we wanna spend a little more money, we can get even more sophisticated with this. And there's a whole additional set of biomarkers, which you're all probably familiar with, which are now being used to help make treatment decisions after diagnosis. Again, I'm not going to get deeply into the biomarker space now, uh, but just to stress the point that to be valuable, uh, a biomarker really needs to improve on a multivariable risk stratification system. To say that we can substratify the risk group is not all that, exci not all that exciting because we can already do that for free with an omogram, with CAFR score, etc. Uh, now, we don't know, we don't, there's not really a consensus in terms of how much you need to improve on a multivariable system, but at least a baseline needs to be something like CAPRA or a nomogram. So there's a number of these on the market. The Polaris, Oncotype, and Decipher are all pretty well known at this point, and they've all been validated to improve on uh, predicting a multitude of endpoints, adverse pathology, mortality, etc. And they all do work. They all beat multivariable risk stratification. A number of studies have shown this. There's no question biomarkers improve risk prediction. Have they really helped us make better decisions? That's a different story. Um, I'm gonna run through these just to save a little bit of time. Sorry for the technical difficulties. Um, the slides are all up there and I'm happy to do more of a biomarker talk if COVID continues into the summer. Um, but the bottom line is that these markers all do work and they all do add to clinical information. Question though, will they actually improve our decision-making for treatment versus surveillance? And I think here it's much less clear. Uh, and what we really need are RCTs. There's a beautiful trial going on in Michigan that Todd Morgan started looking at the impact of a trial, uh, at the impact of a biomarker for actual decision-making. This is a cluster randomized trial. Uh, we're actually randomizing practices to use a biomarker or not. This is exactly the sort of thing that we need to be doing in this space. Uh, and the other question, which has not really been addressed, is how we use the results of biomarkers. We throw you know, 15 different numbers of patients in the course of a counseling session. You know, adding a decipher score or an archetype score does not necessarily help because we don't have a lot of good research even into how these markers should be used. And I think, frankly, in many cases, uh, the clinicians, even those of us that, you know, have lived in the space for a decade now, are almost as confused as the patients. Uh, I can tell you how not to use a biomarker, which is to shift the NCCN risk stratification in some way. And this is just an example. Two patients that I saw within a month, a few months ago, 
who brought in their reports. This is not a thing against the science behind Oncotype. I think the, the biology is, is just as good as the others, uh, but it's this issue of how the results are presented. So, you know, one guy um, had a gleason 3.3, high volume, high PSA, um, and if you actually ran the, the multivariable analysis using this Oncotype score of 30, um, he would have about a 50% likelihood of adverse pathology. The second patient um, who brought in the score from the outside, who had a 3-4, very low volume, lower PSA, running the multivariable tool, only had about a 30% likelihood of adverse pathology, but brings in this paper mark, unfavorable intermediate. So this is, it's a mis misuse of the marker rather than a problem with the science itself. And it's finally critical that we recognize that none of these markers gives us a binary readout. None of them tells us take out the prostate, leave the prostate in. They tell us it's a lighter shade of gray or a darker shade of gray. And ultimately, there's still a tremendous amount of art of medicine in incorporating these with the clinical information in terms of driving decision making. And the final point I want to stress here, this is not a talk about treatment, but as far as for stratification, it really should be an easy statement in 2020 that active surveillance is the standard of care for low risk disease, full stop. Uh, you do not need to check all the boxes for very low risk. Uh, most men with higher volume 3.3 3 can still at least start on and we're now for low volume 3.4s as well. The reason this is a concept within the screening talk is that we will not retake the uh, leadership in terms of the debate about screening until we have solved the over-treatment problem once and for all. And like I said, we're making a lot of progress, but we're not yet where we need to be on this question. So to wrap things up, um, and again, I apologize for the technical problems. We should be offering screening to healthy men with good life expectancy. We should be tailoring the intensity of subsequent treatment based on factors like race, like family history, and critically on the baseline PSA. A man with a baseline PSA under one is good for at least five years, probably more like 20. Uh, but men with marginal PSAs really should be followed carefully um, or potentially offered workup. Nearly all low-risk disease should be managed with surveillance. Uh, and these emerging, emerging markers and imaging can help, but I don't think we have any answers yet in terms of how specifically to implement either MRI or biomarkers in terms of routine practice at the point of clinical care uh, in 2020, but obviously this is a space to watch very, very carefully. So thanks for your attention. Sorry I had to rush through a little bit. We do still have some time for Q&A, and I am more than happy to answer uh, additional questions you know, uh, asynchronously over the days to come. So thanks very much. Uh, and I wanna say a huge, huge thank you and shout out to the organizers of this uh, collaborative. I think it's incredible how quickly this is pulled together. Uh, not only to the Michelle and Kirsty who have put up one of the better websites, uh, uh, frankly, across the clinical departments at UCSF. Uh, it's functional, beautiful, works well. I think this is really the future. And one of the real silver linings of the pandemic is, is rethinking uh, our approach to education, to patient care, et cetera. So uh, I look forward to where this platform is going to go in the future. So thanks all, and sorry again for my Wi-Fi. Thank you so much, Dr. Kuberberg. That was a wonderful talk. Um, really complex uh, topic with multiple moving parts. So that was a nice review of our current evidence and um, certainly a little more clarity on the issue. So uh, we've got a, a number of great questions coming in. Um, I think we're gonna extend the session to about 10.10 if people can stay. Um, and so we'll just, we'll just take, we'll just tackle them and anything that's un, unanswered, we'll put on our website for people to view later on. Um, a couple questions about Gleason 3 plus 3, our grade group one. Um, you know, there's discussion now about whether we should just consider this to be a precancerous lesion. Um, and that has implications for both, you know, surveillance, but also in terms of the uh, ERSPC uh, update and uh, the number needed to detect, um, the number needed to invite to treat, those numbers may, may change whether you're uh, deciding that grade group one is, you know, clinically significant or not. So a question about that. Yeah, great question. One of my, one of my favorite controversial questions these days in cancer, actually. Uh, I am in the small but growing minority of urology oncologists that think there are a subset of 3.3s that we need to rebrand. Uh, it's probably not all Gleason grade group one that should not be called cancer, but these little microspecs where we see 5% of a single core, the second biopsy is negative, um, MRI is clean, we try to run a biomarker if there's even enough tissue to do that and it looks normal. This is not an uncommon scenario. And the more we take deeper dives into the biology and look not just at a set of 12 genes, but do a full molecular profile on these tumors and see that they look effectively indistinguishable from the surrounding normal tissue, 
these really should not be called cancer, um, in my opinion. Now, it's a controversial statement. Um, a lot of folks still focus on the fact that the pathologists say this invades the basement membrane, it looks invasive to the pathologist, and therefore we need to call it cancer. I don't think that's a good enough argument um, in 2000 characteristics of these things, and a lot of them just molecularly do not look like cancer. That's not all three threes, but it's a pretty size of three threes, probably 30% of them. And the point is not that we should call these normal and tell the man go home and forget about it, but that we can give him a label of something other than cancer, whether it's a P lump, a cor you know, equivalent to a pun lump, or idle tumor, or there's lots of different terms kind of thrown around out there. Uh, there's the prostatic epithelium of neoplasm of indeterminate significance, which most men would not care to have uh, treated radically. Um, you know, and I think we need to head toward that sort of paradigm. And again, the idea is not to call this normal, but to think of it more like a colon polyp. If you have a colon polyp, you need to get more frequent surveillance than if you have a normal colonoscopy, but nobody's going to go in and take out half of your colon for a polyp. And I think that's the sort of paradigm that we need to start thinking. Uh, for a subset of the three degrees. And this is where the molecular studies will really bring um, is figuring out which brand. That's a great question. Um, and then, the, so speaking of uh, biomarkers, and it looks like there's some interest in a second biomarker talk as well. Um, there's a great question about uh, in sort of the MRI era, um, how are you combining the biomarker uh, information with the MRI finding? Um, and also, what biomarker do you like to use in your practice and for which patients? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm obviously biomarker is a whole, whole different talk time. Uh, so, combining the two, uh, we have no idea. And I went through it quickly, but that was one of the points. We had the San Francisco very clearly is imaging and markers are evolving very rapidly in parallel and we do not know how to combine them. It stands to reason that if you've done a targeted biopsy, you should use, you know, you're, more, you're most likely to find the highest degree cancer on the targeted biopsy as opposed to one of the systematic cores. But that's not always the case. And usually the guidance is you want to run the marker on the highest grade or most aggressive looking tumor, but the longest length of the highest grade is usually the standard. So that is our practice. Um, so if it happens that the targeted biopsy did not find the highest grade, you should send the higher grade one for, for analysis. You know, as far as how to use the information, um, we don't really know. You know, what do we do when the MRI is negative and the biomarker is positive or vice versa? And I'm not sure if Claire is still on. Claire was one of our panelists, is, is doing a study as we speak, really trying to get at this question. And we, don't, we do not know the answer. Um, my personal feeling is I am more a fan of using one of the liquid biopsies as the reflex test, sorry, liquid, liquid markers in the diagnostic space as the reflex test before going on to MRI. So uh, I generally prefer for men with a marginally elevated PSA to get either a 4K or a select MBX test um, as the second screen. If those are negative, we do not proceed. If those are positive, then MRI to help guide the biopsy. There are people out there that advocate for MRI first, and then only if you know you do the MRI and the biopsy is negative, do you perceive the liquid markers? Some of that depends where you live. If you're in Europe, then the cost of MR is less than the cost of the markers. Um, in the US, the opposite is true. And you know, logistically, it's obviously much easier to, to run a marker. So I tend to get the markers first. And the pre-diagnostic space. The post-diagnostic space, um, I am a fan of Decipher uh, over the others, mostly because we get a lot more information. They're running the full aphrometrics array, so we're getting effectively a full genomics panel in addition to the test itself. Um, we do a fair, a fair amount of Prolaris testing as well. I think Archetype has good biology behind it, but I'm, I'm not a fan of the score report uh, because of the way it's kind of locked into this NCN, MCCN type uh, paradigm. Great, thank you. Uh, one more question about active surveillance. So um, people are interested to know what your active surveillance protocol is, how you might factor in some higher risk patients, and what kind of advice you'd have for clinics who may have a high um, no-show rate, you're worried about loss of follow-up. How does that factor yeah. in your management? 
all fantastic questions, which I've got a whole different slide deck uh, that, I, again, I'll, I'll take your thoughts and I'll do as many of these as you, as you guys like. Um, so active surveillance is obviously in very, very rapid evolution. Um, actually, I'd encourage everybody to go to the Euro Today site. We just posted a video interview I did with uh, Peter Carroll and Maury Klotz about the history and future of surveillance, addressing some of these questions. Um, UCSF has always been a little bit of an outlier, I think, you know, justifiably so, and we're kind of on the right side of history with this, um, both in terms of launching surveillance early, but now in terms of pushing the envelope in terms of who is eligible for surveillance. So we will put anybody with 3-3 pretty much, and carefully selected 3-4 patients on surveillance. Uh, but as far as how we do it, this is evolving quite rapidly, and it's increasingly clear that a one-size-fits-all approach to active surveillance is not really the best way to go. Uh, we have a paper circulating in review now from the Canary Consortium, really the risk characteristics. Uh, it's not quite straightforward. If you look at things uh, like the PSA kinetics, like history of a negative biopsy or not, the extent of biopsy involvement, uh, things like this, we can make pretty good predictions now out to at least four years as far as possibility of upgrading or increase in volume. And the thought here, again, is tailoring the intensity of surveillance. So the, the gestalt, my gestalt is for every 100 patients that go on surveillance, there's going to be obviously 40-ish that eventually, um, 40 to 50 who eventually have some reclassification or higher grade disease and are going to go on to treatment. There's probably no more than 5 to 10% that actually have bad biology and should go immediately to treatment. And then there's a big pool who really should think about every year or two and this is this is where we're really trying to go with you, uh, to try to uh, like I said tailor the intensity of surveillance maybe undiagnose some men and this is where I think markers and imaging will have a greater role to play going forward um, but we still don't quite know how to use the tests uh, specifically I will say there's some great work out of the music consortium in Michigan suggesting that you know only 25% of men that start on surveillance are even getting the baseline assessment over the first year and a half of surveillance so it really is important that we do a good initial confirmatory biopsy that we follow the PSA initially, um, et cetera. So, oh, and, and the, so the question about uh, follow-up, that's a difficult one. Uh, we had a paper out from uh, Zuckerberg Hospital in San Francisco. There have been a couple of others highlighting this issue of, of loss of follow-up. And it is a challenge, uh, but it doesn't necessarily justify over-treatment either. So just because you're worried the man is not going to come back does not mean he should go straight to surgery or radiation. It means we need to put systems in place for monitoring and surveillance. And it's, it's a challenge, but it's one that we need to take on. Yeah, I agree. I think implementation is very important. Um, all right, maybe time for one more question here. Um, it's kind of around uh, the involvement of PCPs uh, in, in, screen, in the screening process. So in your opinion, what's sort of the most ideal uh, PSA screening protocol in which men um, and then there was a question about uh, whether or not uh, PCPs themselves should be doing uh, DRE and checking PSAs. Yeah, great question. So, well, so everything in screening happens in primary care. It's a very small minority of men who get screened by urologists. And most men who get a PSA test by urologists, it's not screening, it's workup of BPH, et cetera. And that's an important distinction, by the way, is if a man has voiding symptoms or you know, hematospermia or any other red flag like that, PSA is not screening. It's evaluation. Likewise, a 70-year-old man with a PSA of six and a half, you know, do you check another PSA on him? It's not screening, it's, it's workup. The screening implies, you know, an otherwise, uh, otherwise unevaluated man. Um, so the vast majority of screening happens in the primary care setting, not in the urology setting. So yes, it is the primary care docs who do the PSA tests and they need to be educated. And a big reason, big part of the reason that you as urologists need to understand these data and need to understand the concepts of good screening is not because you're going to be doing it, it's because you need to be in a position to educate your local primary care and local referral community because they're ultimately the ones that make these decisions. It's very easy, especially between 2012 and 2018, for the primary care docs to say, great, you know, no PSA testing, one less thing to worry about in life. Um, or conversely, to just check that same box on the Chem 50 every single year for the 87-year-old uh, with you know two strokes and a heart attack under his belt to keep checking PSA testing. So it is our job to educate 
the primary care doctors who actually do this. As far as DRE, I don't feel strongly about it. Uh, most primary care docs, frankly, don't do a fantastic DRE anyway, and is a barrier to screening. Men don't, you know, a lot of men don't want it. Uh, what I usually tell the primary care docs that ask that very good question is, if the baseline PSA is low, meaning less than one, DRE is not going to tell you anything. You know, yes, there are occasionally be cancers with a PSA of 0.7 and a positive DRE, but they're so rare, that's not what the point of a screening paradigm is about. So if the PSA is low, you don't need to do the DRE. Now, if the PSA is marginal, then DRE is no longer a screening test. It's part of evaluation of the marginal PSA. And yes, in that setting, you really should do a DRE as part of the workup of a PSA of 1.8 or 2.3 or whatever it is. Um, and it really depends on how much the primary care docs want to get involved, whether they should or can get involved with these other markers. There is no reason that a 4K or select MBX test cannot be sent out of a primary care clinic. Uh, there are a couple of primary care uh, clinics at UCSF, for example, that are interested in doing this. They haven't implemented it yet. But it makes a lot of sense to use tests like this as a reflex test at the point of care. Because if they have a PSA, guys with a PSA of 1.8 gets a negative 4K or a negative select or a negative uh, exo test, uh, that patient can be just as well reassured by the primary care doc as by the urologist and probably does not need the whole consultation if you kind of put that kind of paradigm in place. So, you know, the slide I just re-flashed up here is what we are now implementing at UCSF. And we're going to study this and continue to modulate it. It is closest to the NCCN guideline of all the various guidelines out there. Um, and, and I will say this really was the result of a, a really terrific, you know, at times challenging, but really terrific conversation uh, between me and primary care leadership, uh, the uh, epidemiologists, and an effort called SFCAN, which is a UCSF, uh, San, San, city of San Francisco joint effort aimed at wiping out racial disparity for prostate cancer across the city. Uh, and that has really, you know, th this goal of improving that disparity I talked about at the beginning of the talk uh, between outcomes for Caucasian and African-American men, it's really clear that better screening for African-Americans is a critical plank uh, in that effort. That, you know, the can has really been a great catalyst to drive this conversation forward. And we've put this, this has been in place since July of 19, 2019. And we were just kind of gearing up to get some analysis done on this. Um, and hopefully, despite COVID, we'll be able to do that over the next couple months. Um, so yeah, that's where we're at. And like I said, if anyone wants to hear more about surveillance remarkers or any of the rest of it, um, I am more than happy to come back another day. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.